As we get into Matthew 7, 13 through 23, uh, I want to offer a, a word of explanation on something that will prove uh, helpful to you as we enter into this. I want you to understand that biblically speaking, in terms of a couple of different things that the writers can do and what they can communicate, one of them would be rebuke. And so they can offer a rebuke. They catch you, they catch me, they catch us in the middle of doing something. And, and so we read that word and it tells us, stop, cut this out, don't do this anymore. And then on the other side, they can offer a warning that is communicating uh, this could be the outcome if you continue to engage in this behavior or if you find yourself moving in this way, this is what things are going to be like for you. And so you can uh, relate those to your own life when you disappointed your parents, when you did something you weren't supposed to do, or maybe you have a, an older sibling and you saw them get rebuked. And so I can remember, I have a brother who's six years older than me, and I can remember frequently him getting rebuked. Now, wisdom would say that I would learn from him, but I needed up-close wisdom sometimes and, and needed to follow him in those same patterns of behavior. But until I understand rebuke, you know, if I had seen him make mistakes and then watched how my parents responded to those mistakes and have modified or changed my behavior not to lead me down that same path, that would have been heeding a warning. It was rebuke intended for him, but a warning for me. When we get into this passage, I don't want us to misread Jesus's warning for a personal rebuke, because I think to do so would do great danger, one, to the security of where we feel that we are in Christ. And we would feel that, oh, I don't know, I see these things happening in my life. These things are meant to be a warning. So when you hear these words this morning, if it shakes you, if it causes you to really think to yourself, oh my goodness, I don't want to end up like this, I don't want to be that, then it has accomplished its end. We should be shaken. We should be fearful. And being shaken and being fearful should change and should modify our behavior. This is not a rebuke. This is not saying, cut it out, don't do this anymore. This is saying, please, please don't end up here. Let this warning stand for us. Jesus begins with the command of verse 13, and he tells us that we are to enter by the narrow gate. And then he gives us two reasons for this. He says, for the gate is wide and easy is the way that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. Then he flips and he says, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. So he describes two things, a gate and a way. And he describes them two ways. He says, one is easy. It is just kind of by nature of just kind of living and engaging, you may find yourself on this path. But the other one, he says, is incredibly difficult to find. It's incredibly difficult to locate. And when you find yourself on this path, it's precarious. It's difficult. This is the path. This is the way of oppression. This is the way. This is the path of persecution. But his command, notice, is this. Enter by the narrow gate. When Jesus spoke these words, and we have to understand this within the kind of the unfolding of salvation history. 
Jesus spoke these words, the disciples and those other, others gathered there, not a single person within his hearing was a Christian. Why? He had not died yet. He had not risen yet. And so he spoke these words to men and to women who would have to make a decision to choose to follow Jesus. So he stood in there with this room. And these people knew a great deal about Jesus. They knew a great deal about the Bible. And he tells them, enter by the narrow gate. I believe that if Jesus were here this morning, for those of us who have not yet uh, chosen to believe and to follow Jesus, his word to you would be the very same. Enter by the narrow gate. And so we hear this command, we hear this word, and we understand why he has to give us this specific command. It's because he says, the gate is wide and the way is easy. The gate is wide and the way is easy. Know this. If nothing changes in your life, if you are born, you are raised, regardless of how wealthy or how easy you have it, if nothing changes, you will find yourself going through this wide gate and on this easy path. Now, Jesus certainly isn't meaning to say that it's going to be amazing for you. And so you might not be a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, and you may have a rotten, miserable, and terrible life. Nothing may go your way. No breaks may happen for you. Everything could be terrible for you. But Jesus still describes it as being wide and accommodating. So how can he speak of it being wide and accommodating if, man, I know people, I have friends that are not Christians, and their life is not easy. I, I have friends, I have family members who aren't Christians, and, and I wouldn't say that they have, are living a particularly enjoyable life. So how can he say that it is wide and that it is easy? It's wide and it's easy. Because it requires nothing of you. It requires no change on your part. It requires no submission on your part. Your life gets to be whatever you want to make of it. And you can choose to do or not do whatever you want because you are the Lord and master of your life. There is no morality. There is no ethic. You get to determine what you want to do. So Jesus looks at it. He says, if nothing changes in your life, understand this. The gate is flung open, and you will find yourself easily, by default, walking on this road. And so we hear this, and we begin to think, oh, just kind of unencumbered life. I can do whatever I want to do. This sounds amazing. Where do I sign up? And know this, you are already signed up. But paradoxically, he tells us that this easy, wide way leads to destruction. This life is all that you have to look forward to. This life and all the goodness that it brings to you is there for your enjoyment and you'd better because this is all there is for you. In terms of pleasure, in terms of ease, in terms of delight. It says the gate is wide and the way is easy. It leads to destruction, and we find those who enter into it are many. When I think of the numbers of friends I've had, number of people I've met over the years 
There are so many more friends of mine who are lost than friends of mine who are saved. I think about my family, not just my nuclear family, but I begin to kind of expand it into cousins and second and third. And some of you get together with these guys. It's called lunch. But, it, but for me, I don't see them very often. And I begin to think of them kind of expand it further and further out. There's so many more in that group that are not Christians, that have not chosen to submit themselves to Christ and to the way of being a Christ follower. It's the many. So then he turns, and we still have the same command that is entered by the narrow gate. The command of Jesus asks us to choose to avoid destruction, life spent eternally separated from God, suffering forever in hell. Do you hear the gracious plea of our Lord? It tells us, he says, look, nothing has to change in your life. You're going to be able to stay on this wide path, but I'm telling you, I'm imploring you, I'm begging you, enter by the narrow gate. Anybody can enter through the wide gate, but choose to enter the narrow gate. He says this, this gate is narrow and the way is hard. But amazingly, it leads to life. <laughs> Do you see the difference there? We find that if we don't change anything about us, if we don't submit anything in our lives, we will end up in utter destruction and ruin. But if we choose to enter into this narrow gate, if we choose to bring our lives under the dominion of Christ, under his lordship, it's difficult. It's incredibly difficult and it's cumbersome. It's challenging. It is the way of persecution and pain. But unlike this easy and wide gate that leads to destruction and death, this narrow, hard, difficult path leads to life. But the text tells us that those who find it are few. Christianity is not an automatic for anybody. I don't care if your mom and dad were missionaries to, you know, outer Namibia, outer Zaire, outer Zaire. they live and dwell amongst the 5,000 scientists who live in Antarctica, and their goal and mission in life is to see a resurgence of faith among them. They're not doing too well, but they do have a small people group. What we're told in this is to find the narrow gate. It requires something of you. It requires, it requires investigation on your part. It requires dedication on your part because this gate is easily overlooked. When Valerie and I were living in Prague, as, as was often the case, we had people fly over to visit us, and I had a former professor who was flying over, and he said, hey, look, I'm going to be in town. I'm, I'm teaching a group of students who are coming over from South Korea. We're going to meet in Prague. We're going to be there a couple of weeks. Could you pick me up at the airport? I said, yeah, that's no problem. I can pick you up at the airport. And he said, well, I'm staying in a hotel. I, I don't know if you know the area. I said, look, I don't know the area, but I'm certain that we could find it. So he sent me the address. And so I had the address, and I entered them into Google Maps, and I found it was right there. And, and we had our GPS in the car, so we picked them up at the airport, and we got on this super highway and began to go in. And the way was easy, and we're just being kind of forced and funneled along. 
But the closer we got into the city, the more difficult it became to navigate because the buildings were taller and our line of sight to the sky became smaller and smaller and smaller. And so what we began to see is that our GPS signal was failing. I don't know if you've ever had this experience. You're driving along, you've got the GPS, and you come to a stop, and that little dot keeps moving. And you're just like, no, come back! Don't leave me here! And so we drive around and around, and, and there are no end of the one-way roads in dead ends. And I'm just, I'm, I'm thinking, he's like, do you know where we're going? I'm like, we got this. Would you shut up? <laughs> Sir, doctor, person. Oh, you can't grade me anymore. I just said, shut up. And so we, we get to this place, and I, and I told Valerie, I was like, get out the paper map. Like, we've got to figure this out. The GPS, she has failed us. Get out the paper map. So we get out the paper map. We're flipping along. And she's like, I've got to find the cross street. So she gets out of the car and she takes the paper map and she's walking along and she's great with direction. And so she's like, north, south, east, west. I mean, just all these cardinal things are amazing. And she's like, here's this street. Here's this street. I know where we need to go. So she comes back to the car and she begins to pilot us through these streets. And the closer we get, the more narrow these streets are. And we're driving a 1997 Mitsubishi Charisma, which you've probably never heard of, but imagine a really terrible Toyota Corolla, smaller, dank, nasty, vomit stained, super gross. And so we're driving down and we can see the hotel or the sign for it at the end of this road. And we begin to pilot this car down the super narrow street. And all I'm thinking is there's no room for pedestrians. <laughs> and as we go down through, I'm thinking we're not going to make it, but pedestrians are doing this number along the wall. And we're going further and further and further to find his hotel was difficult. It required something of us. We couldn't just navigate and, and depend upon these things. We had to get out and investigate. Christianity is the same. If you're not looking for it, you'll miss it. If you don't seek for it, you'll never find it. It is not automatic. And this is why he tells us those that find it are few. You have to want it. You have to seek it. And in seeking it and finding it, know this. If you've been told that Christianity will greatly enhance the course of your life and the duration of your life and it'll make everything wonderful for you and make everything make sense for you, you have been lied to. Jesus tells us plainly, it is hard and it is difficult. So if you're in a phase of your Christian walk and you are so incredibly disappointed that life is so hard, your kids have chosen poorly and they have wrecked their life on scandal, your wife has left you, you have lost your job, you find yourself sick, and you're beginning to ask the question of, was it worth it? I thought this was going to be easy. I'm sorry. You've been lied to and misled. To be a Christ follower is to choose suffering and to choose pain so that God may be glorified, so that you may be sanctified. And it is about your eternal destination, not your temporary, current predicament or situation. It's a hard choice. It's a difficult choice. And it is a choice, quite frankly, that we have to make day in and day out. Jesus tells us 
simply through the words of Paul in Romans 10, 9, and 10, speaking in terms of salvation. And this is such a simple explanation. He says, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, we'll be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. The problem with most manifestations of American Western Christianity is we like to refer to it and think of it as punctiliar. It is this defined moment in time. And so most conversations we have with people in terms of, man, are you a Christ follower? They say, I was baptized or I made a decision. But one of the things we recognize in being a Christ follower is it's not making a one-off decision. But it is fundamentally altering the way I live, the way I think, and the way I go about every fabric of my life and surrendering all of that to Jesus. And he tells us, it's hard. There is no bait and switch with Christianity. But the church, for whatever reason, has been misleading people for too long. It is hard to be a Christian but it's absolutely worth it. It's absolutely worth it. See, it's not just hard internally. It's hard externally. Jesus goes on and he tells us that now that you have found this narrow way and you're, you're headed through this gate and down this way, know that there are no small number of people who will seek to sidetrack you. So Jesus says, now that you're on this way, you need to beware, you need to look out for these guys who are false prophets. And so we look at this, and and, and I gotta tell you, if you come up to me, you say, Matt, look out for the false prophets. I create in my mind these delusional characters who spout nonsense that are easily recognized. And so they, they wear wigs for whatever reason. I don't know why that's what they wear in my head. But I recognize them and that everything they say is just utter and complete nonsense and just stupidity. And so everything they say, I dispel the moment they say it. They say it, I hear it, I say, and I just keep moving. But the false prophets Jesus described are not seen this way. We always tend to think of the people that say things. We say, oh, this is just absolutely false. But look how he describes these false prophets. He said, they come to you in sheep's clothing. Anybody ever been afraid of a sheep? We got one. We'll talk. But sheep are are the most innocent animal. They have no ability to bear sharp, raise a sharp fangs and just come at us. And so we find that these sheep lull us into a false sense of security. So he begins to describe them this way, and then he says, you need to understand something about them. Inwardly, they're ravenous wolves. Now, the picture of the story that kind of comes into our mind is Little Red Riding Hood, and she goes in, and she stands before grandmother, and she says, oh, grandmother, what big teeth you have. And she's like, oh, big, big teeth? No, I've got no big teeth. And so what big ears you have? What big eyes you have? Little Red Riding Hood, not real sharp on the uptake. (laughs) And so we have this picture and this image that we should easily be able to tell because they're just goofy looking. And so they've got this white fleece pulled over them. They have ears sticking out. And they have a large nose sticking out. And they have large teeth sticking out. And they smell like a wet dog. But the text tells us that it's inwardly that they're ravenous wolves. 
There's no ability to discern at great distance that these people are actually in it for your harm. So he tells us that you can't look on the externals and know what they are. You can't offer this cursory, this simple, this quick view to know what they are. But he tells us that you will recognize them by their fruits. In essence, we're asking the question, what is the output of their life? I hear what they're saying, and of course, we can, we can look at Scripture and say, is this true? If I live my life this way, will I, am I guaranteed health? If I live my life this way, am I guaranteed wealth? If I live my life this way, am I guaranteed to keep my hair? I don't know. We can challenge them according to the Word of God, but he says we can also challenge them according to fruit. Now, Paul gives us two listings of fruit in Galatians 5. And the first one begins in verse 19. And so he says, now the works of the flesh, and so this would be the fruit of a false prophet. He says they're evident, they're clear, and they're able to be seen easily. And they are sexual immorality. One of the things we've seen in the news frequently lately is sexual immorality. And it seems like everybody is falling all over themselves to give testimony to how they are pure, how they haven't done it, and to punish those who have engaged in sexual immorality. And some Christians are falling all over themselves to excuse people because their way that they want things to be is more expedient to skip around elements of sexual immorality. He says it's evident. It's clear you can't avoid it. It says impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissensions, divisions. This sounds like Thanksgiving to some of you. Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. He says, look, this is just a little bit of the list. Things like these as well. This is the fruit. This is the byproduct of a false prophet. So what about a true prophet? What about somebody who is speaking from God and speaking the things of God into our lives? What happens? What is the output of their life? How do we contrast? How do we look at these things? He says the fruit of the Spirit is love. It is joy. It is peace. It is patience. It is kindness. It is goodness. It is faithfulness. It is gentleness, and it is self-control. So you begin to kind of think through in your mind, kind of who are these false prophets that may enter in your mind? So you go on TBN and you just spend an afternoon watching people and you say, Billy Graham, I see these things coming from his life. This guy over here, this woman over here, I don't know if I see these things coming from their life. I don't know if I see this as the output of their teaching. This person I know locally, I, I don't know if I see this as the output of their teaching and I certainly don't see this positive fruit evidenced in their life leads to more and more questions, which leads us to the understanding that if, if you don't see positive fruit, don't listen. You've got no reason to. Jesus goes through and he begins to give us some illustrations of why it is necessary to test the fruit of those that we might place ourselves underneath and listen to. He says, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or, or figs from thistles? And everybody there would say, look, I don't know very much. I don't raise very much. But no, I know that, that grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes nor figs from thistles. So he says, look, because we know this, we know that every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. 
He says, look, if you have a tree and it's not healthy, it's not going to produce healthy fruit. So he goes on in verse 19. He says, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I think we want this neutral tree. We want the thought that this tree is, it's not really good, but it's not really bad. It's just kind of there. I'll let you know I have two of these in my front yard. They are pecan trees and they are pecan sticks. They don't produce fruit. I keep hoping they will. I've gotten one pecan in a couple of years and it was great. We recognize that a tree that's not producing good fruit, he tells us that this tree is good for nothing but to be cut down and thrown in the fire. So Jesus is talking about in terms of final punishment, separation from the love of God, and sentenced to eternity in hell. There is no neutrality. There are two ways. There is the hard, narrow way that leads to life. And there is the wide and accommodating way. And it leads to death. It leads to destruction. should be a warning to us. Begin to evaluate and ask the question of, if if I am a spirit-filled person, the, the overflow of my life, the output of my life should be these positive fruit. And if the output of my life has not lately been these positive fruit, then what does that say about me? So this warning causes us to more passionately pursue Jesus instead of pursuing those things that are lauded and praised by those around us. Jesus speaking in John 15 on the issue of fruit, and and maybe you sit here today and you say, look, I just don't see these things in me. I, I find that lately I'm losing more battles than I'm winning. I just don't see these things in me. Jesus offers us this word that we must remember. John 15, 5, he says, I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Over the course of our Christian life, we have the opportunity to lean into Jesus and to focus on him and be dependent upon him or to withdraw from Jesus, to withdraw from community, to coast, and to be dependent upon ourselves. If you are dependent upon yourself, if you have cut yourself off from Christian community, if you are not leaning in and following Jesus passionately, you will produce fruit for a time. It's kind of this leftover effect of Jesus. Man, when my mom comes in or we go stay at my mom's house and and Valerie and I get ready to leave, there is no end to the number of things that she wants to send with us, many of which we we don't want. They're going to be trashed as soon as we make it to the first gas station. But just food galore. And so we could live on the leftovers and the candy and the stuff that was like, you know, five for 25 cents that she bought. We could live on that for a while, but at some point, we're going to have to start cooking real food again. We're going to have to start getting plugged in and taking care of life again. There is a holdover effect to time spent with Jesus. 
but it has to be this repeated return to him. Abiding with Jesus has to happen on a daily basis if you want to have the output of right, proper, righteous fruit in your life. This is why he tells us that a tree will be known by its fruit in verse 20. Now look, 21 through 23, and then we'll close out. I'm going to remind you there's a difference between rebuke and warning, and Jesus here is using a clear warning. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So Jesus describes this scenario. He says, look, you have these two groups of people. You have some people who are going to come up to Jesus on judgment day, and they're going to say, Lord, Lord, giving us the impression that they, they assume that they are a follower of Jesus. And so they cry out with this wonderful title they've given to him, Lord, Lord. He is their Lord, they presume, and he is worthy of honor, they cry, Lord, Lord. Jesus says, not all of those who utter that phrase will enter into the kingdom of heaven. So we recognize that just saying it, just kind of notionally engaging in it, is not enough to carry us into the kingdom of heaven. And so the question becomes, who in the world gets to get in? I want to be in that line. It's the narrow gate. He says, it is the one who does the will of of my Father who is in heaven. Now, the Sermon on the Mount has been teaching us a particular kind of understanding for the will of Jesus, kind of how to understand what this will is. We recognize that Jesus has told us twice that the outward doing of stuff is not enough to measure up to the righteousness of God to get us into heaven. Jesus told us back in Matthew 5 and verse 20, he said, For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So he takes these two groups who everybody in society would have thought these guys are righteous, they have it all figured out, and everything they do is honoring and pleasing to God. And Jesus says their righteousness isn't enough. So recognize that the doing of stuff can never be enough to enter into the kingdom of heaven. You can get here and set up parking cones and greet people and, and bring donuts and buy donuts for everybody here. You can wash people's cars while we're in here gathering. And, and just so you know, I didn't drive today, if that's what you're wanting to do. But you can do all of these things and still not enter, not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus told us again in Matthew 5, 48, he says, You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. To enter into the kingdom of heaven is to do the will of God. To do the will of God is to passionately pursue the heart of Jesus. So that in that pursuit, he is transforming and changing our hearts. So that over the course of our lives, our periods of rebellion and disbelief and disinterest are growing fewer and far between. And the duration is getting shorter and shorter and shorter. When he says perfect, what he's talking about is a whole life righteousness so that our outward deeds are matched with our inward heart response to God. 
It's not just the doing of stuff out there. It's not just knowing something in here. It's when these two things come together that we find ourselves doing the will of the Father. Jesus tells us, he says, look, you need to understand, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, and they're going to come up and they're going to describe the things they've done. So he says his first group's going to come up and they're going to say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And he's not talking about looking out and saying, tomorrow it will be rainy. Tomorrow the Tao will hit this. Tomorrow you should do this. He's not talking about foretelling. He's not talking about describing something that's going to happen. His use of the word at this point describes more proclamation of Scripture, preaching, evangelizing, communicating the word. So this, in essence, is kind of what we see. Jesus effectively calls out, you might even say for our day in our community, he's calling out pastors. He's calling out those who communicate the word. He says, we're going to have this list of pastors who they're going to walk up and they're going to suppose that they've got a buy and they're going to walk to the front of the line and they're going to say, Jesus, did I not preach and teach in your name? I mean, look at, look at my ministry. Look at all the impact I've had for you. He said, then we're going to have this group of guys, and they're going to come up, and these men and women, and they're going to say, look at the amazing things we did. We battled principalities. We found the demonic, and we moved into those realms, and using your name, we drove them forth. It was amazing. The spiritual warfare, we engaged in your name. He's going to go to this last group. They're going to come up and they're going to say, Jesus, those people preached and, and the people before them, they cast out demons. But the miracles we performed, we brought people back from the dead, we healed the sick, caused the blind to see. He did all of this by the power of your name. We spoke in tongues of angels. It was amazing. Jesus is going to look down and he's going to see the three groupings. He's going to see these that taught. He's going to see those who uh, exercised demons. He's going to see these over here who did the mighty works. And he says he's going to declare, or the word there is, he is going to confess over them. He's going to offer this confession to them. I never knew you. Do you hear the warning? You can live your life in such a way that you are engaged in righteous behavior and he doesn't have your heart. You can do everything right. You can have a phenomenal ministry, have people seeking you out for your advice and for your wisdom, and still you could stand there and he would look at you and say, I never knew you. Depart from me. Sermon on the Mount sought to arrest any way of thinking about following Jesus that was in the externals. It's what I know, it's what I do. 
and was moving from the externals, what I know and what I do, to the internals, who I am and what I'm pursuing. This morning, heed the warning. Don't live your life captivated and caught up with who sees you do what, or that God sees you do this, or that you're engaged in this righteous behavior so that. Give him your heart. Confess your sins to him. Ask for his forgiveness. And then passionately pursue him daily. And know this. You will fail. You will fall. You will disappoint. We serve a good father who, when he sees us fall, picks us up. When he sees us fail, corrects us and steers us back to the right path. And when he sees us disinterested and apathetic, he brings good brothers and sisters in this church and other churches alongside of us to cause us to run the race with renewed vigor and interest. This warning doesn't have to be true for you. It doesn't have to be. But for some of us, if nothing else changes for you over the course of your life, you will stay on the wide path through the wide gate, and what awaits you is destruction. But the really sad thing and the devastating thing, I think, for, for much of Western American Christianity is that too many of us will stand before him and describe all the amazing things we did and how wonderful our life was and the impact it had on others. And Jesus' response is not going to be, come in, my good and faithful servant. But his response to many of us, too many of us, will be, I never knew you. Depart from me. Let me pray for us. And this is devastating. It is terrifying to think that I could live my life and be recognized and seen as righteous and as good and stand before you and describe that and have you have never known me. God, I thank you for the warning that is in your word. And pray that we would heed your warning for what it is. You're not rebuking us for something we haven't done yet. You're warning us for what our futures could look like if nothing changes. Father, I want to pray for these people in this place. You would, by the power of your Spirit, show them what it looks like for them to give you their hearts. I pray this for the staff and those on stage we would never be so delusional to think that it's just the doing of stuff and the coming here and going through the paces. We would want you to have our hearts, that we would want to have your heart, and that we wouldn't stop until those things are true. It's the narrow gate. It's hard. It's difficult. It's the narrow path. It's the way of persecution and pain. Don't relent. Don't give up on us. Don't let us give up on ourselves. 
Don't let us give up on each other. As you call us to walk, to enter in through this narrow gate, I pray that we would be calling one another to do likewise. And we pray these things in the wonderful, powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen.